pray. In you, O Lord, we have put our trust. Let us never be put to confusion. Deliver us in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to us, make haste to deliver us, and be our strong rock and house of defense, that you may save us. For you are our strong rock and our castle. Be also our guide and lead us for your name's sake. And to your hands we commend our spirit, for you have redeemed us, O Lord, O God of truth. Amen. This week we continue our study of the book of Zechariah, an often overlooked and underappreciated Old Testament text. As we have already observed, there is a richness and a depth to Zechariah's prophetic vision and messaging for the ancient Israelites. This book marks the beginning of the post-exilic period, the time after Israel regained its freedom from Babylonian captivity. Up to this point, we have been studying the prophetic visions of Zechariah as revealed to him by an angel of the Lord. There's been a fair amount of contextualizing to do as these visions are dense with imagery and metaphor that rings strangely in our modern ears. But it has been a good work, a rewarding work, as we observe the movement of God in the lives of his people long ago. This work is rewarding because we see that God's purpose in the Old Testament is not so different and disconnected from his work in the New Testament, or even now. He desires for his people to know him, and he desires to dwell among his people. This is the consistency of the God we worship. Today we finish out the last of Zechariah's visions, the eighth and final one. This final vision is a rather hopeful one compared to the divine judgment and words of warning we studied last week. In those visions, Zechariah observed the ramifications of sin and of idolatry, the poisoning of relationships between people and improper worship of God. It was meant to sober the Israelites, reminding them that Yahweh is not a God to be trifled with. To belong in his family is to behave in a certain way, no excuses and no free passes. It was not unlike a father saying to his children, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. And I confess that it was rather difficult to frame that into a children's sermon. But today is different. The eight visions that begin the book of Zechariah are a bit like a feedback loop. The end returning back to the beginning, connecting and conversing in new and interesting ways each time we revisit these visions. The feedback loop of Zechariah twists and turns, showing a new side and orientation each time it is observed. The eighth vision shares DNA with the first, wrapping back around again and again in continuity. At their core, visions are meant to be wrestled with, opaque in their poetic nature. The artistic rendering of something far grander than the mind can truly comprehend. And this is why we still grapple with these visions 2,500 years after they were put to parchment. The eighth vision of Zechariah interacts with the first vision closing this feedback loop. In Zechariah's first vision in chapter one, we see individual horses of all kinds of colors, freshly returned from a reconnaissance mission, announcing that they observed peace over the earth. In chapter eight, we see multiple groups of these similarly colored horses mounted in teams to chariots, preparing to, to bring a show of God's sheer power and strength to the four corners of the world. Theologian Mark Boda writes, 
Whereas the first vision depicted horses fresh from a reconnaissance mission for which speed was essential, this final vision pictures horses embarking on a retribution campaign for which power is crucial. Additionally, there are a few markers to help give scope to this display of God's military might. The angel explains to Zechariah that these horses are also the wind. There is some debate among scholars as to what this wind signifies exactly, but the majority seem to agree that it is an explanation of God's spirit, and more specifically, the spirit of his judgment and will. The military imagery of the horse-drawn chariots doubled with this spirit wind is a doubling down of the Godward and military aspects of the visions, a combination of God's will and might. The image of the horses in the first vision is a promise that God observes and sees all things on earth, while the images of the horses pulling chariots is a demonstration that God is also in control of all these things he sees. This vision completes the first, feeding back into the full scope of Zechariah's visions. And But wait, there's more. Much like last week, the focus of this demonstration of God's strength and protection centers around the North Country. The patrol is set to go out throughout the whole world, yes, but special attention is given to the place where Babylon sits, where Israel remains. At this time, some of Israel had left exile already, but many were still isolated and trapped by the Babylonians. To those still in captivity, God was communicating that the entirety of his military might would be coming for their captors very soon. Historically, we know that this is true. We know that the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great spelled the end of the Babylonian Empire, proving the truth of Zechariah's vision. God really did use the wrath of his wind to protect his own, ensuring the end of exile for Israel in that time. This vision ends with the wrath of God satisfied, with Babylon dealt with. The wrathful wind of God's horse-drawn chariots bring peace and rest to his spirit, finally. Now Israel can surely enter into a new age, rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple and emerging from exile. Each of the eight visions we have studied point to God's involvement in the lives of his people, finally culminating with assurance that he would protect them, that he would set all things right. Some scholars have called the visions of Zechariah the night visions, due in part to the first vision's occurrence at nightfall. So if we call Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7, through chapter 6, verse 8, the night visions, then chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, if you can keep up with me there, could be thought of as the beginning of dawn. We have emerged from the dreams and visions of the night and are now heading toward the illumination of the realities of the coming day. The sun is just beginning to peak over the horizon, and the light is starting to give some clarity to the surrounding landscape. To give you some scope as to where we've come from and where we're headed, I think it best explain the overall general structure of the book of Zechariah. Essentially, there are three sections to the text. The visions we've just explored, and spoiler alert for the next part, there are four messages and two oracles. We'll also observe over the coming weeks that the scope, both in scale and in time, will begin to expand throughout the book. For now, however, we're still observing the return of the exiles from Babylon. 
Zechariah 6, 9 through 15 acts as a sort of bridge connecting the end of the visions back to the reality of the day. It is the stamp, both a period and a comma, ending what came before and looking toward what is coming next. If you haven't picked up on it yet, there is a strong messianic tone to the book of Zechariah with 6, 9 through 15 being perhaps the most overt representation of that yet. This passage grounds the night visions, bringing them back down to earth, back to Israel's present reality. After 70 years of exile, we are presented with a small group of people who have returned to the ruined temple. They are priests, bringing gold and silver back with them from their captivity in Babylon. These priests are commanded to fashion this gold and silver into a crown to place on the head of the high priest Joshua, who you might remember from the vision about his dirty robes. This crown is not a royal one, however. Rather, it is a symbol that God is with his people as they begin the act of rebuilding his temple. It is a sign that God's blessing is resting upon the high priest, a prophecy of what is to come. It will later be placed in the completed temple and guarded by the priests as a sign of God's promise to his people at this time. This passage also marks the prophesied return of the Davidic line back to the site of the temple. Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, will ensure that the temple is rebuilt and will rule from the throne with the high priest Joshua at his side. The relationship between the two is foretold to be symbiotic, a divinely appointed partnership of a beautiful potential. One theologian writes, the status of the priest is an important change from the royal court in the earlier era, for he now takes the rank of chief counselor to the king, an important safeguard to avoid the failures of previous Davidic kings and a strong reminder of the covenant priorities of the Lord. Presented here is an Israel that has learned from its mistakes, creating safeguards to ensure that past actions will not be repeated and captivity will not happen again. It is then said that those who remain in captivity will finally be freed and that all will return and ensure the rebuilding of the temple will come to completion. Those people will know that it was the Lord that brought them to this place and that it is his temple that is being restored. But lest they forget, verse 15 gives a final warning. This will happen if you diligently obey the voice of your Lord. God is reminding them of Zechariah's night visions, that they ensure that they have been reshaped as a people and that they do not forget the cost of their being released from captivity. Live rightly, worship rightly, rebuild the temple. This is a message that says God's presence is returning, hope has come. I can hardly imagine the comfort that this would have instilled in the Jewish people of this time. They would have a home again. God would dwell with them again. Prophet, priest, and king would once again ensure that things were being looked after. We happen to know how the rest of the story goes. In about 500 years' time, Jesus would be born, the true prophet, priest, and king, and temple, all rolled into one. He would also come to make all things new setting the captives free from sin, redeeming all of creation to himself and ensuring that God's presence would be with his people at all times. But even with this knowledge, the world is still difficult. Read the headlines, step outside, look at your own life. I don't need to tell you how things are. This is what we call the already and the not yet. For those that believe in the sanctifying power of Christ's sacrifice, there is forgiveness of sin and an immediate belonging to the kingdom of God. 
Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and were by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is the already. We know we already belong to Christ. However, we also know that he has not yet returned as he promised he would. We live in his forgiveness, but continue having to live in a broken and sinful world beset by all manner of things too difficult to name. This is where Israel was in Zechariah. They already knew that God was working things out for their return home and his presence to be with them, but it hadn't happened yet. They were in an already and not yet too. But as we have studied, God is in the habit of providing hope to his people. Let me read again this morning's passage from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, or anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We may not be in captivity like the Israelites, or even be able to understand the horrors of such a thing truthfully. We do face difficulty. We may not be longing for the restoration of a literal temple, but we do long for Jesus Christ to be our temple. We might not hope for the unification of our prophets, priests, and kings, but we do hope in the true prophet, priest, and king. Friends, we can look behind us and see God's promise to Israel for hope and a future in this book of Zechariah. And by the grace of God, we can also look forward to a time when all things will be made new. God does not forget his people. Open that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>